Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you. If you haven't got a Bible, could you turn to, if you've got a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5, we're carrying on with our next um, part in the series of Proverbs. If you haven't been with us um, over the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Proverbs and we've hit chapter 5. And today we're going to talk about sex. When you preach through a book of the Bible, which is what our habit is here most of the time, you preach through everything it has to say, which means you can't dodge anything. You can't pick and choose your favorite bits and ignore the bits you don't like or find unpalatable or difficult or head-scratching. You have to deal with it all. And today, this is what it has thrown up to us. And we live in a sex-saturated culture. I don't think anyone would, would disagree with that. Advertising, sex sells. It's amazing what they advertise with a scantily clad woman or a very buff-looking bloke, you know, to make us buy their particular product. Advertising on its whole is built on the idea of lust. You want more of it. You want it. Watching films and television, more and more it seems there is sexual content in there. More and more, if you, now they've got on the back of ratings, on the back of video, video, bo video boxes, just date myself there, on downloads, it, it doesn't just say a rating, it explains why it's got the rating now. Frequent sexual content or something like that, you know, it's, it's everywhere, more and more. Um, recently, I came across this um, statistic, it was in the, um, the Guardian, and there'd been a massive study recently on sex, sex habits that had been one of the largest of its kind in the UK, and they, they printed some of the stats with us. Apparently, on average, how they clock this, I don't know, but apparently, uh, how, how often do we think about sex every time, uh, how many times a day? Men, 34 times a day, unusually precise. Women, 19. Apparently, we all think about sex, men, a bit more. The average age for losing your virginity is about 18. The number of sexual partners on average any person has is between 9 and 10. I think it's actually 9.5. How you do the half, I don't know, but it's, there's the average, 9.5. And, and on average, couples have sex four times a month, it says. 50% of people surveyed in this survey admitted to having one night stands with a partner for just one night and then moving on. In terms of adultery, on average, it was quite hard to nail it down, between 25 and 70% of women have admitted to having adultery, cheating on their, their spouse. Um, for men, it was between 40 and 80% higher. The irony of it, though, that was 90% of those who had admitted doing it didn't end up with the person they cheated with. The world has hijacked sex. It's taken it and it's run with it and it's done all sorts of things with it, but actually God created it. I don't know if that's ever a truth you dwell on and think about. God created sex. God created everything to do with sex. He created man and woman to be sexual beings and to join in sexual unity and have sexual intimacy. God invented the orgasm. That's tweetable, isn't it? Yeah. And what we're going to look at today is some of this subject as it comes up in Proverbs. This dovetails is what we're going to look at in two weeks' time, which is the back end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, which also deals with this subject. And there's an interlude kind of that Jeremy's going to deal with next week in the middle. So that's what we're looking at. So Proverbs so far, as we've looked at it, we've talked about the book of Proverbs is all about life in the nitty-gritty. 
It's not about big cosmic themes that we find elsewhere in the Bible, about God and his sovereignty and Christ and what he's done. It's about how we actually do life day to day. How do I actually do my life when I'm, you know, again, I'm going to work tomorrow morning? What do we do? And it, the general principle is if you follow wisdom, you have a long life and you're kind of healthy. If you follow the teaching of Proverbs, that's the general how it works it out. And that's what Proverbs teaches about, how life generally works most of the time. Chapters 1 to 9 of the book are like an extended uh, introduction. So we're halfway through today, this extended intro. And then the back end of the book, which is kind of most of it, are these pithy little statements about life. Only a couple of lines maybe saying this is how we should live life. And what we found is that in the book of Proverbs, behind it, we have God speaking to us. It was written by Solomon, the wisest man outside Jesus who ever lived. He wrote it down, but behind that you have the voice of God himself, Jesus calling to us to follow wisdom. And what we've seen today is the beginning of this wisdom that we can learn on how to live life is having a right fear of God, a reverent awe of who he is and the fact that he created everything. And actually we live in his created order and we follow his way because he knows best about everything. We've seen the warning of wisdom. Actually, don't go and hang around with the wrong kind of people because it leads you down all sorts of paths. We've seen the call of wisdom, this woman personified at the end of chapter 1 who was yelling at us saying, listen to this truth, listen to it and your life will go well. We've seen the value of wisdom, how important it is that we should treasure it and hold on to it like precious jewels. And it's actually worth more than that, but that's what we should treat it like. And we've seen there's a path of wisdom we need to walk that requires commitment and we've seen that we can also, last time, that we can all learn wisdom. It's not something for the elite, for the smart people in ivory towers, academics. It's actually for everybody. Anyone can learn wisdom. Anyone can grow in wisdom. Anyone can kind of get better at this sort of thing. And then after all that kind of thing, wisdom comes to its first subject, really. What should we talk about first? And in God's wisdom, he chose sex. So let's start chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read it to you, and it will come up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion. Your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip, drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Least you give your honor to others, and your years to the merciless. Least strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I do not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the street. Let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your, your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the woman of an adulteress? Sorry, brace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led 
astray. Okay, big idea. Sex is a gift of God to be enjoyed by one man and one woman in marriage. Now, the structure of this passage, the way it works, you've got an intro, first six verses of an intro, then about seven to 20 are the, the kind of the lesson, which is sort of split in two halves, and then there's a conclusion at the end. And what we're introduced here is a character of the adulteress, which is a female character. Now, just a little word about this. The way that this has been written is a father speaking to a son, warning him about this other woman. But we can't get hung up on gender in this. It's not about women bad or anything like that, actually. This has got application across the sexes. It just happens to be a father speaking to a son about this other woman. And so actually we need to move beyond that and actually think this has got application across both genders in the same way that when we saw Lady Wisdom calling out at the end of chapter 1, it's not like only women are wise. It's not, okay, we are agreeing that, not only women are wise. Yeah, yeah, there was a real slow there. All the blokes were like, yeah, that's right. No, no. So the character of the adulteress is just used. It's like we're the bride of Christ. It doesn't, have, you know, it doesn't mean all Christians are girls. It's just, it's just an image. So we've got to, but that's what the, is in Proverbs. All right, so how it begins. It begins with a grim truth. So we've got the father addressing his son, which is a common theme that runs through this intro in Proverbs of trying to pass on wisdom to the next generation. And he's talking to his son and he's assuming a few things. First of all, he's assuming he's old enough to experience sexual temptation. So obviously this is not to a child child, it's obviously to someone a little bit older, but he is talking to his son about it. And he talks about the forbidden woman. And we find on later actually this woman could be actually already married. And actually, she's forbidden to you. She's not yours. And he says, be aware of her. He's someone who's not allowed. Someone who is, is forbidden to you. Someone you shouldn't have. Someone you shouldn't be thinking about. You shouldn't be following. And you definitely shouldn't be sleeping with. And he begins with, interestingly, talking about speech. Talking about how you talk. What you say is important. And, and when we think about it, speech is actually associated a lot with sex. You have courting speech, seductive speech, love songs, love poems, whispered sweet nothings and he's actually saying actually be careful about the words that come out of your mouth because you want you to be, be have words of discretion you want to be a person who, who speaks well about this subject and if we cast our minds back to Joseph when we preached through Joseph it was at the beginning of the year and we looked at him and he had this great part where he was tempted by his boss's wife who was a bit of a hottie and she took a liking to him and she came to him and said sleep with me and she had all the power, she was, you know, she was worth something. And basically how Joseph responds to her, he said, he spoke out to her, he spoke the truth. He said, behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house, he's put everything in my charge, I'm not going to sleep with you. He's, he's withheld nothing except you. And if I slept with you, it would be like a sin before God. I'm not going to do it. So he started by speaking out truth, and then we find he followed into action, and he, and he ran. And his, the father's saying to his son, you need to be able to speak the truth. She's going to be giving words to you. There's going to be this seductive speech, this call, come sleep with me, come have sex with me, come enjoy me. And you have to counter with words from God. Words that speak out to you and say, no, this is not right. I shouldn't be doing it. You are forbidden to me. You are married to somebody else. I can't do this. And it describes her words. It describes they drip honey. Honey, there was no sugar at the time, as we understand it. So honey was the sweetest thing. So her, her words are sweet. Her words on her lips are sweet. There's got an image there. Kissing those lips would be a good thing. They would taste 
nice. And he's saying, they're going to be, they're going to be, they're going to be good. You, 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 you kiss them. He's saying, actually, they drip honey. They're going to sound really great. And then it's got that image of the smooth image of the oil. The oil is an image of kind of gladness and prosperity. That's what you're going to think. You think, if I sit with her, it's just going to be good. She's going to taste good. It's going to feel good. I'm going to feel epic because I'd have like, yeah, I've got the hot girl, and it's going to be wonderful, and isn't it going to be awesome? And then what happens in verse 4? Beginning with verse 4, it's always when you see that word, you've got to be careful. What does it say? But, oh, it's all good. It's like, wow, she's awesome. I'm having her, but there is a sting in the tail. He's talked about this wormwood. Wormwood is a herb that you didn't eat because it literally made, it made you sick. It was bitter. It would go down and it would sit in your stomach and be like... Oh. And actually, he's contrasting the sweetness of honey actually with the, the reality. Actually, if you eat that, if you taste that, it's going to make you want to be sick. It's, it's this bitterness. And then he, he used another one. He said that the oil was smooth. It was nice. But actually, he said, actually, it's like a sword, a two-edged sword. And two-edged swords are razor sharp and they are lethal. They will kill you. So what you thought was going to be nice, tastes good, it's going to end up making you sick, feel terrible, and ultimately it will kill you. That's what's going to happen if you kind of give in to this temptation, go down this. And then he goes on to describe this woman, her words appear good, but actually they're not. And it describes the direction of her life. It said her, her feet go down to death. Let's move from her mouth to her feet. It said they go down to death. She's, she's ignorant of the ways of God. She has no knowledge of God. She wanders aimlessly. That's kind of her life. She's just going around like this. And you're going to go after that and you're going to end up following the same direction because she doesn't follow wisdom. She doesn't know the ways of God. She doesn't know what she's been doing. And that's the truth of this. It looks great, but if you got involved, it'll end up being terrible for you. You will lose direction on your life, no moral compass. It will all end in destruction. And so that's what he's, he's warning against this woman. And he basically says to him, what's his advice to him? The next section, verses 7 to 14, he's basically said, keep your hands off. That's basically what he's saying. Keep your hands off. He's saying, he's saying, just listen up. This is important. You've got to listen up, listen to my words, and stay away. Stay far away. Get away. Don't go anywhere near temptation. This, is a, this was a person said, don't go anywhere near her. Don't go where she goes. Don't be where she is. Get away from her. If we could um, think back to, to Joseph, he spoke out the truth to Potiphar's wife, and then what did it say he did? He, leg, he, leg, he legged it. He ran out of the house so fast that she tried to grab his garment, where he's wearing, and he had to leave it behind, because I am going, roadrunner style, and I just, I'm leaving that. I'm getting out there. And I'm, someone once said to me once, the best way to avoid temptation is not be there. <laughs> just don't be there. Go away from it. Get away. Tell someone. Say, this is what's going on. Just do anything you can to remove yourself from the situation. And he's saying, if you don't, we follow that, the next few verses there, he's saying, he's saying there are terrible consequences to your actions. Terrible consequences. And what you've got there, you've got this image of, the son going after this married woman and almost the retribution and the consequence of him doing so because the husband of this woman might find out, probably will, and what can happen in, in that culture is that you, there's a loss of wealth, a loss of social standing, 
He can actually be called before kind of the, the congregation that was there, the people, the community, the village, and actually there will be destruction. There were some situations, I was reading commentaries, where actually the, the son in this particular situation could become the slave of the husband for what he's done with the wife. It's basically almost, you could become his slave. They could almost be, that's the punishment for going after the married woman and sleeping with her. The husband always had that right there. And he's saying, actually, this is what could happen. And you'd lose family. And the father's saying you'd lose family honor, you'd use our honor, you'd use our wealth. You could, you could damage the family or go beyond you by your actions. And actually, and that's something that bears out today. We don't have literal slavery, but we have broken homes and child support and hurt and jealousy and, uh, you know, pain and suffering, even STDs. All these things carried on from this kind of behavior. And the end of the child's life, he said, it would be categorized by kind of anguish and torment. That's what would happen. And regret. What a waste of life. If you, if you play with this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come bad for you. It's going to go bad for you, it says. It's going to destroy you. And then it says at the end there, there's almost this cry, which is terrible when you read it, of the son in this scenario. That if you did this, Father's saying, if you go down this way, if you act like this, he cries out, and there's just evidence of a hard heart. He's saying, I hated discipline and despised reproof. I rejected the words of wisdom that we find in this book. I rejected it. I hated it. I wanted nothing to do with that. I just thought I ignored that. I ignored your advice. I ignored what you said. And it says, I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Look, everything is ruined before all the kind of people who know us, because there have been tight-knit communities there, they wouldn't have had the social media, so it would have gone beyond. But it would have, everyone within the community in the village and town would have known about this. It would have just got around. And he said, I am absolutely undone. I am destroyed by what's happened in this situation. There have been ramifications on him. I read a quote in um, one of the commentaries I was reading about. It said, adultery brings personal shame, humiliation to loved ones, and loss of respect in the larger community. It is a social, not just a personal offense. And it still ruins political careers. So we see that even today. There's that kind of, we've moved a lot morally, but actually there are some realms where actually that kind of thing is still bad news for people and it destroys them. And so that's his warning. So if you do this, there are great consequences. Keep your hands off, your woman, off this woman. What's his kind of response to this? Keep your hands on. He's saying, keep your hands off her. Keep your hands on. The reflection actually says, actually, don't touch her, but that one over there, you can touch. Who? His wife. Your wife, you can touch it. How do you kind of come against some of this? How are you going to deal with some of this? He, he describes these images. He says, there's this image of thirst, sexual thirst, actually. He describes it like that, actually, that sort of sex drive. How do you quench that? Well, you go after your own wife. You go off your own. That's how you deal with it. And he uses these images. There's the image of a cistern, which was a, um, a kind of reservoir dug in the ground, sort of pear-shaped that would collect rainwater and would be a place you could go and draw um, because it would be kept there in dry conditions and you could, you could quench your thirst because that would be there. He also uses the image of a spring that would flow up uh, and you could use that to quench your thirst as well. And actually springs in desert countries where it's very dry, very arid, springs became prized possessions. You wanted to keep the spring, you wanted to keep it pure, you wanted to keep it for yourself because it, it would water you, it would water your family, it would water your kind of flocks if you had those. It would actually be a source of something that you keep really kind of under guard and you protect it and you look after it and say, actually, we don't want this to go anywhere else. And he's saying, basically, your hot desires, 
can be cooled by a cool drink from the right source, a cistern or a spring. And he's saying, the image goes on, he says, don't scatter that around. Don't leave that flying all over the place. It's kind of coming against the idea of promiscuity. If you've got a spring and it's a prized possession in your house, you don't just liberally just throw it around in the streets. You keep onto it. You hold onto it. Sexual pleasure is for the privacy of marriage. It's where it should be enjoyed. It's where it should be. When one man and one woman come together in covenant, that's the place that you have it. And that brings a satisfaction. It's a satisfaction there. And it says... Verse 18, he's basically saying sexual satisfaction between a man and a woman should be in both quantity and quality. He says, let your fountain be blessed. Now, usually when we have that in other places in the Old Testament, that's a blessing often refers to children who are a blessing. But actually here, children are not in the frame at all. He's talking purely about sexual gratification. And he's saying actually enjoy it, and you have to enjoy it in two ways, quantity and quality. He's saying, actually, have a great time with your wife. He's talking about um, rejoice in the wife of your youth. So there's an idea that actually it doesn't just begin at youth. The wife of your youth implies that you're older. When you've gone, gone on a bit, got a little bit older, you're not quite as you know, trim maybe as you once were, but actually you still enjoy the wife of youth. So there's an idea of actually this happens over a long period of time. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. That's fairly self-explanatory, but I'll just focus on the all times. There is a, all times means actually over a long period, isn't it? That's not just like once, that's like actually, there's a, there's a quantity there, regular, regularity. And then it says, with delight, then it says, be intoxicated always in her love. The, the intoxication there is that idea of almost drunkenness. And so actually it says the, the sexual relationship between the husband and the wife should have that kind of characteristic of almost like, like the, you're drunk. So it should have that kind of feeling of, of happiness and giddiness and laughter and enjoyment. So there's, like, there's an all time, there's a, there's a quantity, this should happen a lot, but actually it should be really good. Okay, and you should have both of those things happening in your relationship with your spouse. I did a quick search and I tried to find kind of when it talks about you know, sex between a husband and wife. You know, what's, what's a good number? How often should it happen? You know, everyone asks that question. How often should you do it? Um, and actually the only thing I could find was when you shouldn't do it. It was in Corinthians where it says actually you should stop having sex so you can pray but not for too long in case temptation comes. And so actually the implication of the Bible is it should be something that should happen a lot regularly and it should be good. It's just something that you enjoy between a husband and wife, and it should be something that they mutually kind of get together. And so you've got two parts of the lesson there. There's the kind of negative and the positive. And it's the way I kind of thought about it is um, sex is like fire. If you play with it, it can burn down your house and you. If you put it in the right place in the half, it can warm the entire home. And that's his kind of his point he's making. You use it properly, it's incredible. Use it poorly, it will destroy you. And then the back end, the last few verses there of the, um, of the, uh, the chapter is kind of just a conclusion, a sum up. And he, he points it back to, on a theological bent, interestingly. It's all very kind of practical, but actually says it goes back to God. You get intoxicated with the wrong person, this forbidden woman, this woman you shouldn't be with, this woman you shouldn't be fooling around with. He actually said it's a sin before God. Ultimately, it's before God. Yes, there might be a, you know, a, a husband in it who's wronged, 
But ultimately, it comes before God. It's always a sin before him, first and foremost. When we sin in any area, it actually ultimately comes before God. There's that classic Psalm 51 that King David wrote after he'd committed adultery and murder. And what does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. He was kind of getting the right sexes, and he's saying, ultimately, this is, a, this is an offense against God. This is offense against God, what you're doing. And you need to think about that. If we're people who love and serve the Lord and want to follow him, we're actually offending him. And he's assigned a moral order to the universe. He's assigned what's right and wrong and how it should live. And actually, if you're going against that, ultimately, you're going to come under his judgment. And actually, you'll be offending him that needs to be dealt with. And ultimately, you get involved in these sins, involved in these things, and it basically is something that's like it says there, it's something that's going to hold you fast, like a trap like a snare. It's going to grab you, hold you, pull you down. And actually, it's all the result. It says there at the last bit, a lack of discipline, actually not thinking this through and actually understanding what you're getting into. Okay, that's the lesson from Proverbs for us today. How are we going to kind of take this away and sort of make some sense of this for us? First of all, if you are single here, i.e. you're not married, the thing to take away, number one, is that you keep sex for marriage. Make that decision now in your heart. You may have already made it many times before, but make it again afresh today. That actually the right place, the only place for sex is marriage. That's where it should be. And when I say sex, I also kind of mean the sort of the broader things. Let's not get legalistic about, well, it's just this one thing. That's okay. No. Sexual gratification is for marriage between a husband and a wife, your spouse. Another thing to add on there, being single is not a lesser form of Christianity. It's not a lesser form of Christianity. Marriage is not a goal to fulfillment. It can sometimes be like that, and churches can sometimes portray it like that, and we can sometimes speak about it like that, but it's not. Who was the most fulfilled man who ever lived? Thank you. Jesus. Was he married? Did he have kids? No. Yet, he perfectly fulfilled God's kind of purpose for his life. He had a perfect relationship with his Father in heaven was perfectly fulfilled in what he did. And it was incredible. So he is our model, and he is not married. He had no children. He did not have sex. And so actually, let's just make sure we're saying that up front and debunking anything that comes with that. If you are single, put yourself in community, among people and places. Make as many friends as you can in the, within the church community. Get yourself around others. Put yourself in safe places. For all of us, if we have made sexual mistakes in the past, and you know about it, you know, it might have even been recent, the recent past, get them dealt with. The images portrayed here in um, Proverbs are horrible, but they're kind of almost, they're pushing it to the extreme. This is what it goes. Repent, bring it into the light, deal with it now, confess it, even today. Do something about it if you know there's something in your life that you need to deal with. Get it dealt with. Get it started today. Don't let it fester because the way it's going to go is clearly laid out here today and it's, it's horrible and it's destructive. And that's for all of us. And finally, we've talked about adultery here as a kind of an actual act, but when we look, consider the words of Jesus, what did he say? But I say to you that everyone, married, single, male, female, who looks at a woman or man with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. 
So it's, not, it's more than just the physical act. There's actually something that comes before in how we, how we look at one another and how we look at people around us and how we consider them. And actually, that's where it all starts anyway in our hearts. So none of us are above reproach in this area. All of us have our own kind of things to deal with and to get right before God. All right, some questions to finish that I'd love you to jot down and think about kind of as we leave and sort of ways of processing this. This is one for everyone. When and how are you tempted sexually? When and how are you tempted sexually? And the kind of the follow one to that is, and what are you going to do about it? And what are you going to do about it? When and how are you tempted sexually? And what are you going to do about it? I remember a guy in my, our old church who was struggling um, with porn on the internet and he had talked to me in a kind of a prayer time and we'd prayed and, th- blah, 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 and we'd prayed and kind of um, repented and I said, okay, that's great. What? I said, what are you going to do about it now because you're going home? He was a single guy lived on his own. He said, and we just talked about it and he came to me and said, do you know what, I'm not going to go on the internet anymore. It's going to really make my life more convenient but I'm not doing that. And I was like, okay. Next week, I thought, mm, I'm not sure. Next week, he turns up with his modem. This is back in the days where he had this modem like this big. And he said, I've whipped this out of my computer. I can use my computer, but I can't go online with it because you've got my modem. And he gave it to me. And I put it in my bag, that bag there that I've still got that's very old now. And I carried it around in my bag for weeks. And I said, I'll keep it until you ask for it back. And he prayed. And, he de- and he, then he came back one time and said, I feel like there's been breakthrough. Can I have it back now? And we talked to him, prayed, and I gave it back to him. But he was like, I'm going to deal with this. And my radical way is actually I'm not even going to go online where the temptation is. I'm not going to find that. And that was just his way. But it's a question of what are you going to do with it? There's, um, there's a stronghold buster in the Freedom in Christ stuff that particularly deals with some of this thing. You can make up yourself, commit yourself to truth, break the power of sin, because ultimately you are, we are free because we are in Christ. We don't have to believe the lies that the enemy says, that you cannot resist temptation. That's a lie that you can't be free from this, you can't get over this, you can't be forgiven for what you've done, all lies. And the way we start is we're honest about it, we're upfront about it, we repent for things we need to repent of, we seek to walk in truth and walk forward in levels of accountability. So it will be good for everyone to find someone to just ask those questions yourself and then talk to someone about it. Find a friend, find someone you know, chat to them about it. But how are we going to protect ourselves from this? Because um, I, I spoke to Melanie as I was comparing this, and I said, in our kind of, we've been working for church and doing church for probably about 12, 13 years each. We've seen a lot of people from adults to young people. I said, what's the biggest thing do you think that takes out Christians? And without, she said, sexual sin. It's the thing that cripples more Christians, in my experience, than anything else. It will derail what you're doing for God. It makes people feel condemned and worthless, and it pushes them out in church. And so for us as a people, let's be upfront about this. It's a real issue that we need to take on and deal with. If you are married, I would like you to find some time alone this week, if you can, with your husband and wife. Set apart a little bit of time, maybe an hour if you have a date night. Use, that, use some time there and ask one another these two questions. Guys, I'd like you to start if the guys are in the room. Make sure this happens. But if not, that's fine. The ladies finish that as well. Here's the two questions. Are you happy, darling, with the quality of our sex life? (laughs) Insert whatever word you feel appropriate there. Are you happy with the quality of our sex life? Quality. Second one. 
Are you happy, darling, with the quantity of our sex life? At which point you stop talking and you allow the other person to speak. Have an honest conversation about this. Don't make it an area that is off limits. What the enemy loves is darkness and secrets and, and being, not being able to speak about something. And so the more it's hidden, the more it's out, the more damage it will do to you. And so just bringing stuff out into the life, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a long conversation, but it's actually, it's a conversation. We're talking about it. And husbands and wives should be able to talk to each other about it. I'd love us to keep accountable. Guys to guys, girls to girls, gently walk alongside one another and say, have you had that conversation? They'll know what it means because they've been in here. Have you had that conversation with your husband and wife? Ask it. Try and get to the bottom if you're struggling with this. Talk about what's holding it up with us. A story from our life, we chatted about this before I did this, so I'm all up front in telling you these stories, by the way, is that, um, first of all, I can aware sex life can be difficult for couples um, with a combination of tiredness and stress and children and work and different work patterns and life and pressure and, and friction between you. It can be very, very difficult. We've been through all of them at various points in our life. We've been married 16 years. We've got two small children. We've had stressful, high kind of energy jobs that have come in us and sapped us. We're often tired, worn out, demanding, all those things. We've been through them. Even with the physical demands of having children, um, they, they, they put a pressure on this. But for us, one of the, sort of the best times was when we, um, when we decided we had an honest conversation. Something was prompted many years ago and say, we need to talk about our sex life. We need to talk about us and how we're doing. It's one of those awkward moments. What are we doing with that? And we were talking about it, and then we were on holiday. We had a few days off, and we were down in the southwest, and we were in a cafe, and we were just having a cup of tea and, and just sort of watching people go by and had that moan of silence. And Mel picked up the paper. I just want to make a point. Mel picked up the paper. It was the sun. So Melanie picked that up. And there was, an, there was an article in The Sun, just saying that. And she was flicking, flicking through it. I think I had a broadsheet, I just want to say. <laughs> but she was there, and she came across this article about this couple that the, only The Sun had challenged to say, right, this couple said, I want, we, the challenge is you're to have sex every day for a month and then write about kind of the experiences of it. It's like... That's interesting. The guy was a shift worker, the woman was a party planner, and they had two small children. And you're like, okay, that's interesting. If that's high pressure, awkward life, that's one of them. And so Mel starts reading this article. I'm deep in the Financial Times or something this time. And then Mel nudges me. Mel nudges me and said, hey, you should, you should check this article out. And I'm like looking at it, and I'm, I read it and I thought, I thought, that's really fascinating. And then it was interesting. They weren't believers or anything, but their experience about their togetherness as a couple and their unity and what they were like, it was fascinating to track it. Like day one, day four, day 11, day, and then day 13. It just had their experiences from him and her and what it did in their relationship, what it did in their marriage, how it kind of changed them. And I'm really thinking, oh, flip it. oh okay, that's interesting, interesting. And then there's that awkward moment of silence, like, Okay, you obviously showed it to me for a reason. <laughs> What's next? And it's actually like, let's try this. Let's try this. And so we did. I don't think we quite hit it, but we had a pretty good go. 
And I can tell you, for a fact, it transformed our relationship. It doesn't make everything right, but it transformed my relationship. And my supposition to you, if you are married here and believers, is we could all do with having a bit more sex. I think it's a good thing. When we've done pastoral counseling with couples, which we've done numerous times over the years, we always ha- and they come to us and say, we need help. Right, talk about it. One of the things that always goes first and always takes the biggest hit is sexual intimacy because people are tired and busy and any level of tension and frustration drops it down. So actually, that's one of the things we look to deal with. Why, you know, how can we help with that? And they've all been transformed by reigniting that. And it doesn't deal with everything, but it is a massive help. And so I just submit that to you. And I know for us, we've had our own struggles in this area over the years. And one of the most significant things we've had happen in it over the last six months was freedom in Christ, which I wasn't expecting. It was dead strange. Went through the Freedom in Christ course and God dealt with a couple of things on me about self-image as a father and unforgiveness um, towards some people in my past. Actually, even predate Melanie. So it's nothing to do with us in that sense. But actually, Mel had some similar things that she'll share at some point, I'm sure. But actually, as a result of God dealing with things in me, it transformed our physical relationship because God had dealt with me. God had dealt with some things in me that was holding me back in committing to her and all the things that go with that and all the tension and the stress that comes with it. And so I just submit to you, married couples here, is talk to each other. Get stuff dealt with. If you haven't been on Freedom in Christ, I know Mike and Sarah are looking to run another one. Do it. Find out what's happening in your life with the junk you're carrying. Get it cleared out. Talk to each other. Open the lines of communication and just be honest about where you are and what's going on and what's happening and the pressures that you are facing in this area. If you want a book to read, um, The Mingling of Souls by Matt and Lauren Chandler is fantastic. We've read just on the whole area of marriage if you want to look into that. But it's something that don't leave it. It's fascinating that the first real practical subject that comes up in this book of Proverbs is sex after all this other stuff. That's what he wants to deal with first and he comes back to it later. We're going to have to deal with this more. So you think this is uncomfortable? <laughs> Don't be in two weeks because um, we can do more of it. So I'm just going to talk more about it. But don't deal with these issues. Take this seriously. Talk about sexual temptation. Work out where you're weak. Protect yourself and that's for all of us. And for a married couple, fight for everything you can to be fulfilled in this area with one another because it will transform you and uh, the church as a whole. Amen? Okay, stand up. (laughs) Please stand up. Can the band come up? I'm going to pray and we're going to finish. Maybe you just want to close your eyes. I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it doesn't shy away from the more uh, difficult and awkward topics that come up, Lord. We thank you for sex, Lord. We thank you that you created it. And it's your gift to us to enjoy, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for all that that means, Lord Jesus. And we pray in this area you would give us wisdom to know how to handle it. Lord God, you give us grace to know how to handle it, Lord, particularly in the area of temptation, which is applicable to all of us. All of us face this in some form or another. 
whether it's on the internet, people, at work, others we meet, things we watch on the telly, or, you know, we're all up there. And I ask God you give us grace. Lord, I thank you that in those areas you have always given us a way out. You promise that in your word. We will never be tempted beyond what we can bear. And if you know you're standing here right now and there's stuff you need to get dealt with, you need to get right before God, I just want to proclaim the truth. He says that God is faithful and just. And he, if you confess your sins, he will forgive you for what you've done and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what it says, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. We can find forgiveness from God. Yeah. It is not beyond. There is nothing you've done that is too bad or too far. Yeah. You can find not only forgiveness but cleansing as well. And if you're in that situation, just confess that to God now. You might want to talk to someone afterwards and grab someone and say, just stand with me and pray. But actually make, make a, a stand on that and say, I'm going to nail that. I'm going to deal with that. Even if you feel like, well, it was a while back, but I've never really said anything. Do it now. Don't leave anything. Don't leave the enemy any foothold in this area. Those of you who are not married here, I'm going to... I want to state again that actually that is not a subform of Christianity. It is a, a completely fulfilled life. And I'm going to pray for you for the grace of God to face the temptations of the world, to face the pressures of the world to conform in that area. And for those of you who are married, I'm going to pray for God's grace in you because the enemy hates marriage. Because it's a gift of God. He wants to destroy it with everything he's got. And we want to be a place that we honor that as well as honoring singleness as well. We want to pray for you guys that you have these tough conversations, that you have these difficult times and, and work through things. And we pray, God, for that's grace. And if you know that you think, I've got to have that conversation with my partner, my spouse at some point, and you're kind of, there's nervous trepidation, God, we ask you to give, give us grace and courage to do that, to do it in a gentle way to be able to start those lines of communication to be open and honest, that nothing's off limit between us. Lord God, I pray you protect us, protect each of us in this area of sexual purity. Lord, we want to say we love you, we praise you. And God's people said? Yes. Amen. Amen.